This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Anthony Albanese might have had a restless night ahead of what could be one of the most important meetings of his political career. After years in China's diplomatic freezer, Australia may be preparing to thaw as the Prime Minister prepares for a formal meeting with President Xi Jinping this afternoon. Our political reporter Matthew Doran is travelling with the Prime Minister and he filed this report from Bali. On the tarmac of the island International Airport, world leaders are welcomed in Balinese style. Anthony Albanese's RAAF jet pulling up alongside the United States Air Force One before the Prime Minister pulled out a special invitation. I will be having a bilateral meeting with Chinese President Xi. Meetings between world leaders at summits such as the G20 here in Indonesia are commonplace. It's often the only time in a year that leaders get to see each other. But with China, it's different. Anthony Albanese will become the first Australian Prime Minister since Malcolm Turnbull in 2016 to hold formal talks with the Chinese President. We need to cooperate with China where we can. We'll disagree where we must. The Chinese government had kept Australia guessing on whether such a meeting would take place and it begs the question, how will the Prime Minister measure the success of the talks? Having the meeting is a successful outcome uh, because for six years we have not had any dialogue. And it is not in Australia's interest to not have dialogue with our major trading partner. Six years ago, the relationship was very different. One of the final acts of the Turnbull government was to block Chinese telco Huawei from any role in the development of Australia's 5G network. And Beijing has since slapped damaging trade tariffs on a range of Australian products. China's taken issue with Australia's participation in freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea, while Australia's raised concerns about human rights abuses and freedom of the press under President Xi. I'm sure that Prime Minister Albanese and, and President Xi have a range of things uh, to talk about. Nick Coyle is hoping the plight of his partner, Chung Lai, is on the agenda when the two leaders meet. The Australian journalist has been behind bars in Beijing for two years, accused of providing state secrets to foreigners. The government have done a great job in advocating for her, and I'm sure they'll continue to do that. And all I hope for, all, all uh, her family hopes for, is a compassionate and speedy resolution. Just how frank the Prime Minister is during his meeting remains to be seen. And whether he takes any lead from the US President also isn't clear. Joe Biden meeting President Xi on Monday evening. The leaders of the two world superpowers meeting for three hours. We share responsibility, in my view, to show that China and the United States can manage our differences, prevent competition from becoming anything ever near conflict. President Xi telling his US counterpart the world expects the two countries to properly manage their relationship. I look forward to working with you, Mr President, to bring China-US relations back to the track of healthy and stable growth. President Biden stressing, as Anthony Albanese has, that communication is key. In Bali, this is Matthew Doran reporting for AM. As the Prime Minister prepares to meet the Chinese President today, AM can reveal details of the latest military interaction between both nations. Last month, two Australian warships passed Beijing's heavily fortified islands in the South China Sea and they were challenged by the People's Liberation Army. Here's defence correspondent Andrew Green. 
For several weeks, the Australian warships HMAS Hobart and HMAS Stalwart have been on what's called a regional presence deployment across the Indo-Pacific. In recent days, they featured in the Japanese Maritime Self-Defence Forces International Fleet Review. Here comes the first foreign vessel from Australia, the HMSA Hobart destroyer. During October, the Hobart and Stalwart were exercising alongside the Japanese and American navies in the contested South China Sea. The ABC has learnt that during their transit, the Australians passed close to the Spratly Islands, where Beijing has for several years steadily militarised artificial reefs and atolls. The People's Liberation Army routinely makes it clear foreign aircraft and vessels are not welcome. An official tells the ABC the Australian Navy was also challenged by the Chinese. The Defence Department is reluctant to discuss the events, citing operational security reasons. A spokesperson told the ABC... During the deployment, HMA ships Hobart and Stalwart conducted various exercises through and within international waters in the South China Sea. All were in accordance with international law, according to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. However, defence insists... Interactions with foreign militaries were conducted in a safe and professional manner, as we would expect for all vessels operating in international waters. In Canberra, the growing strength of the PLA Navy across the Indo-Pacific has been a focus of a University of New South Wales conference. Professor Peter Dutton is from the US Naval War College. From its current level of approximately 155 vessels, the PLA Navy's overall battle force is expected to grow to 420 ships by 2025. It's on track. The visiting expert on Chinese maritime expansion warns Beijing's push for an overseas naval base, such as in Solomon Islands, will only increase. The PLA Navy has increasingly capable power projection platforms and weapons, but is limited beyond the regional context by a lack of available bases from which to project power during, during times of crisis and conflict. US Naval War College's Professor Peter Dutton ending Andrew Green's report. How capable are Australian authorities in tackling child exploitation? A parliamentary inquiry is examining that question with some witnesses preparing to tell it there's plenty of room for improvement and that tech companies also need to lift their game. But there's reason for hope, with experts saying there's been significant improvements when it comes to preventing this abuse material from spreading online. Political reporter Claudia Long has more. Glenn Hulley has just arrived in Canberra. Great, thank you very much. The head of not-for-profit Project Karma is a former police officer. Now he focuses on stopping sexual abuse and exploitation of children. It all started on a trip overseas, around 2013. I was exposed to some of this child sexual exploitation. I was offered a child in Cambodia and uh, it, it affected me. Project Karma works with communities to provide education, investigate cases and rescue victims, as well as provide them with support. Glenn's in Canberra to speak at a parliamentary inquiry today, examining law enforcement's capability to tackle the problem of child exploitation and looking into the role that tech companies have to play. There's still a long way to go. Glenn sees a big problem in how shut out non-government organisations are from authorities, with both sides sometimes doubling up on investigations and facing difficulties sharing intelligence. 
and because we're all operating in our little silos, that information isn't cross-checkable. And the same with law enforcement. They've got no idea what we're, what we're seeing and vice versa. Even so, Glenn says in recent years there have also been significant positive changes. Credit where credit's due. In the last five years, I've seen the Australian government and Australian law enforcement, uh, particularly the Australian Federal Police, invest heavily into uh, prevention of these crimes and pursuing offenders. Project Karma works with Meta, that's the parent company of Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, as a part of their trusted partner program, giving them a direct line to monitor for and report abuse material. But Glenn says tech giants still need to step up their efforts to combat this problem. It's, it's very difficult for law enforcement. I work closely with a lot of people in, in law enforcement uh, and I hear the same things all the time from them about trying to get information from some of these big tech companies. It, it is quite difficult. Hello, Toby speaking. Hey, Toby, it's Claudia from the ABC. How are Toby you? Toby Dagg is the Acting E-Safety Commissioner. He'll also be speaking before the inquiry today. The Commissioner's Office recently issued Apple, Meta, Microsoft, Snap and Omegle with legal notices, ordering them to disclose how they're addressing the proliferation of child sexual exploitation material. It's happening right in front of us. It's happening right in the open. Well, we know that there's a lot of good work being done in the tech industry, but transparency has been very much on the company's terms. And on top of that, while companies have made strides with the use of artificial intelligence to detect copies of known abuse material, they need to get better at finding new content being shared on their platforms. That's where we want to see a lot more investment and a lot more commitment. Uh, and we really want industry to step up to ensure that their platforms aren't being used as a vector to transmit that kind of content. The Federal Police, Attorney General's Department and the Australian Institute of Criminology will also be appearing at today's public hearing. Claudia Long reporting, and if this story has affected you, there is help and support available. You can call Brave Hearts on 1800 272 831 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Australia is now grappling with its fourth COVID wave, but this time round there are some differences. Vaccination rates are high and while other health measures like mandatory testing and isolation are a thing of the past. Doctors are worried that as cases rise, there are many in the community who are more at risk but unaware they can access potentially life-saving antiviral drugs. Sarah Sedgi reports. Like many doctors around the country right now, Townsville GP Dr Michael Clements is seeing more and more patients with COVID. In fact, in the last seven days, I wrote more uh, antiviral scripts than in the, the previous seven weeks. He's found problems that were hindering access to antivirals earlier in the year, such as being able to get a script filled, have improved. Very pleased to have been experiencing lately that the patients are well aware they're eligible and so they call us early and on the same day that they're infected. And uh, the pharmacies seem to have got that supply chain and logistical path quicker. Having said that, the logistical path is still vulnerable. Antivirals can be accessed by COVID-positive people if they're over 70 or over 50 living with two risk factors. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people over 30 with a risk factor are also eligible, as well as younger people who are immunocompromised. While awareness of the potentially life-saving treatments has grown, Dr Nicole Allard, an epidemiologist and GP with Melbourne community health organisation CoHealth, is worried there are still people finding it hard to see a doctor. Antivirals need to be prescribed and work best within days of getting sick. 
the supply is now there where it wasn't at the, the beginning of 2022. I think the issue is more about educating communities who might have lower health literacy and not know to test and to access those antivirals as soon as possible. Plus, we've also got a general practice workforce that has worked incredibly hard for the last couple of years and it's sometimes hard to get into your see your GP in a timely manner. Sydney GP and Vice President of the Australian Medical Association, Dr Danielle McMullen, agrees awareness is still an issue. The main thing we're seeing now with antivirals is still not enough awareness that they exist. I'm still talking to patients in their 70s and 80s often who aren't aware that should they test positive to COVID that there are effective treatments available. And as floods affect communities again, Dr Michael Clements, who is also Rural Chair with the Royal Australian College of GPs, wants antiviral stockpiles for regions at risk of becoming cut off. We need to make sure that somebody's paying attention to these COVID tests and making the, the antivirals available in those flooded and cut off towns. Otherwise, we're going to see secondary damage done to the community. The current COVID wave is being driven by Omicron subvariants. And while experts are trying to learn more, they don't appear to pose any greater risk of severe illness than previous variants. Sarah said you then. Financial experts might tell you a student loan from the government is the best debt you'll ever have. There's no compounding interest and they're often promoted as set-and-forget loans which don't impact your long-term future. But some former students say that's no longer true as their debts pegged, are pegged to inflation and they've shot up dramatically over the past year. National Education reporter Gabriella Marchin explains. In her Hobart unit, expecting mum Carrie Risley washes baby bottles in preparation for her new arrival. The bottles are just one of the many things the 36-year-old has had to spend money on as she gets ready to raise her baby solo. So it was a shock in June when she noticed her student debt had jumped $1,400 overnight. Having this additional debt that I wasn't expecting to be increasing so much is, uh, is worrying for the future. The former arts student's debt currently sits at $36,000 and, like all government university loans, is pegged to inflation. The spike wiped out almost all of her recent repayments. It turned out that I had paid off $74 through working full-time all year, so that wasn't very good. <laughs> The federal budget papers show indexation on student debt was low in 2021 due to COVID. But since then, rising inflation has piled more than $1.9 billion of extra debt on students in 2022. And that's expected to jump another $1.6 billion in 2023. Australian National University higher education expert Professor Andrew Norton says with the rising cost of living, student debt is a bigger problem now than it was in the past. How much money you owe has no influence on how much you repay in a given year. That's solely about your income that year. What indexation does mean, however, is that you'll repay for a longer period of time than would otherwise have been the case. It affects all sorts of things, including how much you can borrow in a mortgage and your take-home pay. So like, there is reason for concern, but not panic. Professor Norton says the government's student loan system, formerly known as HEX and now called Help Debt, is ripe for review. He says the amount students are paying for their studies, the indexation and how repayments are calculated all need to be examined. The government really hasn't paid enough attention to how help is expanding and its costs to them. 
So my estimate is there's about $78 billion owing, including the vocational students who can also borrow. And so that's actually a pretty large part of the government's balance sheet. And this has just crept up over time with virtually no analysis or comment from the government. The government says the affordability of degrees will be reviewed as part of a new funding and policy agreement it hopes to broker with the tertiary sector. But Ms Risley isn't reassured. The worst thing is not being able to afford to give my kids things like great holidays. It is unfair that a lot of the politicians that decided this got free degrees back in the 70s and 80s. Expectant mother Carrie Risley ending Gabriella Marchant's report. Energy giant AGL is holding its annual general meeting today and the result will have ramifications for Australia's energy market. Billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks is on the brink of installing four independent directors to the company's board. The move is designed to speed up AGL's move out of coal-fired power into renewable energy and it has the backing of major investors who want to see rapid change. For more on this, I spoke earlier with our senior business correspondent Peter Ryan. Well, Sabre's shaping up as another victorious milestone for Mike Cannon-Brooks at AGL's annual general meeting in Melbourne this morning. In the lead-up, shareholders, big and small, have been furiously lobbied from both sides for their votes. AGL Chair Patricia McKenzie wants shareholders to back the current board and their recently updated strategy for an accelerated exit from all coal-fired power generation by 2035. Now, that's ambitious, but not fast enough for Mike Cannon-Brooks who bought just over 11% of AGL earlier this year to become the energy giant's single biggest owner. But AGL now has a few vacancies on the board after that buying spree forced the departures of Chief Executive Graeme Hunt and Chairman Peter Botton. So now Mike Cannon-Brooks is backing four independent candidates, big names with significant energy credentials, including the former chairman of the Energy Security Board, Kerry Schott. Shareholders being told new blood in the boardroom is what AGL needs instead of more of the same. And Bryn O'Brien, Executive Director at the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, says today's AGM could be a game changer. At least three of the four independent directors that have been nominated will get elected. So we really do see the election of these directors as a likely transformative moment in the company's history and also in the country's decarbonisation trajectory. AGL's already said that they're planning to accelerate the closure of coal-fired stations uh, to 2035. Do you think by getting these additional independent directors into the AGL boardroom that that can be accelerated? Yeah, AGL has badly, badly underestimated the pace of change uh, in the past and an enormous amount of shareholder value has been destroyed. So we think a transition board with new skills and talent will really serve the interests of shareholders which are aligned with rapid transformation. It's Bryn O'Brien, Executive Director of the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, speaking there with Peter Ryan. And Peter, if Mike Cannonbrook succeeds in getting his candidates elected, will other directors face the axe? Well, Sabra, the influence of new independent directors could shake up the company and force the exit of AGL's interim chief executive, Damien Nix, but much of the focus will be on the future of AGL chair, Patricia McKenzie, whose management of the transition and shareholder expectations have been criticised and she could find herself out of a job if Mike Cannon-Brooks ends the day victorious. But also faster change in the race to renewables at the 175-year-old AGL will set the scene for the rest of the energy sector in getting out of fossil fuels.
Senior Business Correspondent Peter Ryan. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. They were meant to be the elections to springboard Donald Trump's next presidential bid, but instead the Democrats have managed to keep control of the Senate and are doing better than expected in the House. Today, a Republican Party expert on what the midterms mean for the deeply polarised political landscape in the US. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.